Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stella Lardy. Dr. Lardy is a reader at Queen Mary University of London and an associate professor at Pontean University in Athens. She specialises in public policy research, and in particular, how policies adapt to globalisation and how policymakers respond to crises. She studied the role of research evidence in policymaking in Greece, as well as herself acting as an advisor to the Greek government. So, Stella, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, this might sound like a very silly question to get going with, but why the focus on Greece? Is it just because you're Greek and you know it? Or is there something interesting about Greece and how policies are made there? Yes, my, my research is comparative in general, but I have done quite a lot on Greece exactly because, uh, yes, I am Greek and I know the country uh, quite well, but also I find a lot of its features uh, in policy making very interesting uh, for understanding also other parts of the world. So both, I would guess. Okay, interesting. So in what way? What's interesting about Greece that's relevant for understanding other parts of the world? So I guess uh, uh, aspects of the informality of the policy making or lack of uh, institutionalization that sometimes works uh, negatively but other times may work positively, like for example during crisis, is a very interesting feature if we are talking about uh, periods of crisis. Uh, and we saw that in Greece uh, a few times uh, during the Eurozone crisis, but also later with the COVID crisis. Uh, if we see it in a European uh, context, uh, Greece is very similar in, in, in the way it does policy with other Central and South uh, European uh, countries. So it's not so unique, I guess. Uh, so again, you can, you can do comparisons. It's, it's a good case. Yeah, interesting. And how about the role of science and the scientific evidence in Greek policymaking? So traditionally, the, the use of expertise uh, was not uh, very prominent. Uh, so it was not uh, something uh, that uh, uh, would be institutionalized. This does not mean that uh, experts and especially like uh, professors uh, from universities wouldn't participate in the policymaking. They would participate either as a uh, advisors or sometimes being uh, elected as MPs or uh, being appointed uh, as um, general secretaries or even ministers in some cases. So there, there, there was always a lot of interaction, but uh, it, it was never thought through as uh, the use of expertise in policy making as we discuss it today. It, it was more out of uh, respect to the knowledge of professors um, rather than uh, the more technocratic uh, idea of evidence informed policy making that uh, we have today. Okay, so it sounds therefore less institutionalized. Like if you happen to have someone who either had a scientific background or knew someone who did, then great, but there wasn't like the institutional structure for that. Yes, or if you had the budget to do a study, you would do it. But uh, still today, there is no allocated budget in every ministry for studies every year. So we don't know. It depends every time if there is a project that is seen as uh, uh, one that we really need uh, expertise. Maybe there you would see general secretary finding the money to get the expertise. But it's not always there. Okay. So, I mean, one uh, question is about the availability of the evidence and how easily it can be accessed. But then another question, I suppose, is about how it's used once it has been accessed. So, like, in a situation where the evidence is available or the study has been done, 
is that then seen as a respectable input into policymaking? Uh, do the policies tend to follow the evidence and so on? So again, it depends on uh, on the case. So when we are in fast pacing policymaking, uh, expertise is taken into account less. And I think this is uh, common in many, many countries. So during crisis, uh, sometimes you see the use of expertise. And I want to uh, yeah, give some examples of how this works. But some other times you don't have the time to really consult so much the experts. We have also a lot of discussions about studies that were commissioned, but at the end they were never used. Yeah, They were just sitting there in, in, in shelves getting dusted and they were never used. But then you hear other stories, uh, and I'm saying all this because I have done quite a lot of interviews in this field with different policymakers. They have all these studies there and they know what has to be done. And when the opportunity comes, they can take them out of the cell and uh, uh, maybe uh, design a reform and suggest it for funding. So in reality, it's very difficult to to say and to, to really measure how much of it has been used or not. But definitely it's not, uh, there is no process there to use it in a very rational way uh, and in the same way every time. Hmm. So is this a gap that the Greek political establishment or even I suppose the Greek people are aware of? Is it something that they are looking to improve? Uh, so certainly the government has it uh, as one of its priorities to improve evidence-informed policymaking in Greece and this is part of the project that I'm currently working on with uh, JRC. So Greece is the lead country on this evidence-informed policymaking project that aims exactly to strengthen these uh, uh, processes and institutions uh, and to make sure that uh, also the culture, uh, the need uh, for evidence-informed policymaking uh, grows. I think the people do respect uh, also the, the idea of the use of expertise, and we saw that a lot during COVID. Uh, so there, there was a lot of uh, respect to the suggestions that were coming from the experts committee. And when the government was acting according to what the experts committee was advising, uh, people did actually follow the advice much more than uh, than they would with, without the, the advice. So um, I think there is this understanding. We don't have this culture in the, in the policymaking domain because uh, the policymaking is uh, normally fast, uh, very political. It depends on the political moment. And of course, this will continue happening. It happens everywhere. The priority is to make sure that we have policies that would satisfy the majority of the people, even if they are not the best policies ever. Uh, so this this can be changed, uh, I think. Hmm. I mean, ideally, those two areas that you mentioned shouldn't be mutually exclusive, right? Making policies that are satisfying to the electorate and that are well based in evidence. Um, but I guess that's then a communications challenge to bring those worlds together. Of course, and that's why I think in any system you you have to, at the same time, strengthen evidence policy making, but also co-creation of policies. I think the two have to go hand in hand, because you don't want to get in a situation that people are feeling or complaining uh, that policies are made by technocrats and that the other 
issues are not taken into account. Of course, having said that, experts uh, are not only experts that are working with indicators. There should be also qualitative uh, expertise used in policymaking that part of, uh, of, of the qualitative work of uh, sociologists, political scientists, is normally to actually also talk to the people and integrate their views in whatever they are suggesting. So this is also very important, how we understand evidence-informed policymaking and to have it broadly uh, defined and not narrowly as uh, economic indicators or just measurable indicators. Hmm. I just want to go back to something you mentioned a few moments ago about um, the way you see evidence being used less and experts being consulted less when policies have to be made fast, like in a crisis situation. Um, I think that's interesting because I, I, I see what you mean. But I've also uh, heard the opposite case being made and in people saying in particular that the two um, points in recent memory when scientific advice has been like the most used or the most prominent in the public debate and in influencing policymaking has been precisely during crises, the financial crisis and of course the COVID crisis, when governments really leaned very heavily on experts and people in general saw that that was happening and so evidence-informed policy was very much in the public eye. What do you think? Yes, I agree with that. And, and maybe it's better to, to phrase it uh, differently. So in both cases that you describe, also in Greece, uh, the, the use of expertise was increased. But this was because uh, uh, the crisis made expertise uh, more uh, important. In the financial crisis, many organizations, uh, even stakeholder organizations like the institutes, uh, the, the research institutes of trade unions, had to very quickly develop expertise in order to be able to answer to the requests uh, that the European institutions were making or to present alternative uh, policies. But to do that, they did need expertise. And in the, in the case of COVID, as I was saying before, again, we had um, uh, an ad hoc experts council created very quickly because we didn't know how the virus works. So politicians did need the expertise uh, more. So it, it was not the pace that brought the experts in, but it was the type of the crisis and the difficulty of the dealing with them. When I say fast, I mean more day-to-day -day politics, where you want to take uh, something in the parliament uh, and it's a good moment and you just take the legislation to the parliament without really uh, doing the preparatory work because this is a good timing, not necessarily during crisis. Uh, but yes, during crisis, you're very right to, to, to note that uh, this is happening. Experts are becoming more important. Mm. You mentioned the creation of an ad hoc committee uh, in response to COVID, science advice committee, that is. And I think that's familiar. I'm sure, as you know, um, that also happened in many other countries. It, it happened in countries also where actually there were already existing structures that might have been expected to take on that role. You know, if there's already like a health advisory board or an emergency advisory board or something. Still, in some countries, the government created something new rather than relying on what they already had. Uh, I wonder if you saw the same thing happening in Greece. Totally, yes. There was a, already there a, a structure that was supposed to be taking care of this kind of uh, health uh, emergencies. 
but uh, since it was inactive in reality for many, it has never been used. I think it was easier for the government to just uh, very quickly organize a new ad hoc committee. They didn't really have the time to search in in the in the uh, 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 different ministries to see if there was something there. I mean, I'm sure they knew it, but it was much quicker to just do an ad hoc and to also uh, be more free to 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 arrange the membership uh, differently, to also include economists uh, or other specializations that we wouldn't have thought that they are necessary in a more permanent structure, yeah, because COVID was quite particular. Yeah. So I'm glad to be talking about this because I know you've studied the COVID pandemic and Greece's response to it quite carefully. So perhaps we could just say a word or two about that. In general, how did Greece respond during COVID and how much of that response was informed by scientific evidence? So, yes, it's uh, surprising, but uh, Greece managed uh, the COVID crisis pretty well, I think. And I'm saying it's surprising uh, for for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, because it was just uh, at the end of the economic crisis. So Greece only exited the last uh, economic adjustment program in 2019. So just a few months before COVID erupted. Uh, so the health system uh, was quite uh, weakened and and it still uh, is to an extent. Uh, and secondly, Greece is known for its weak public administration. Or I would say was known for its weak public administration because I think this this has been changing a lot. So it was quite surprising to see first uh, that we had this ad hoc committee, which was uh, basing all the all the advice to the government on expertise, and then to see that the government was acting, actually listening to the experts very quickly. So measures were taken uh, uh, very quickly. So the lockdown in Greece came very quickly exactly because they were scared that the health system won't cope. And at the same time, we saw uh, a, a transformation in the public administration during the COVID crisis uh, because the digitalization, the GovGR application was put into practice just during COVID. This was something that the government had already announced and was working on. But because of COVID, uh, they speed it up very much. So this helped also during the vaccines period to do everything uh, very quickly, to very quickly give the appointments, to organize all the vaccination very quickly. So, um, yeah, it was um, much better than we would have expected <laughs> in a way. Yeah, interesting. And was other expertise part of the picture too? When I say other, I mean um, not just infectious disease experts, epidemiologists, biomedical sciences and so on. That was at the second stage. I think at the beginning, it was mainly epidemiologists. It was only later. And when it was realized that the lockdown is going to have more uh, implications uh, that other uh, experts were used. I don't think there was so much emphasis on behavioral sciences as uh, there was in the UK, uh, for example. So we did see fatigue uh, of the uh, citizens uh, developing. So although at the beginning they were very good in uh, following all the advice, uh, the lockdown, everything, uh, listening to Chiordas, who was a super expert, uh, presenting the measures, slowly this died down. Uh, and I think it was because of this lack of uh, more specialized expertise on, on uh, social behavior. Yeah, I see. Yeah. So you had a superstar scientist, did you? 
Yes, we did, as most, as many other countries did, yeah? Yes, indeed. And he, he was also very good in explaining in a very simple manner to people. He's an expert that is very good in his uh, scientific work, but also a good communicator. So as we, were, as we were discussing before, this is very, very important. So normally you would have uh, Tsiordas, the expert, uh, explaining uh, what the situation is. And then uh, the minister that was responsible for civil protection explaining what the measures that the government has decided are and how they relate to what uh, the expert had just presented. So they were a very good uh, duo uh, because they were really uh, complementary. So that was a big part of the success, this communication uh, uh, strategy. Yeah, great. And from what you say, it sounds like it was also very clear for people to see the different roles that these different people were playing. Yes. So that was that was also very important because if things were going wrong, you wouldn't blame the expert. <laughs> it was the, the government that had made a decision. And that's important because you need to have the experts there all the way through, even if something is not exactly correct. Of course, uh, the, the COVID situation was a very challenging one because uh, this, the science was also changing, as we know. Not even the experts could always be sure about uh, what they were uh, saying. And they were trying to explain that. And people are not used to this uncertainty. Yeah, the People are want to believe at least or want to feel that the experts really know what they're talking about. So uh, us as experts, we know that we are only making hypotheses or scenarios based uh, on our best knowledge and that these are not set in stone. But I don't think the public is always aware of this uh, 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 nuance. Yeah, indeed. And I think there's been some realisation since then about the lack of awareness and how we might address it. In general, I mean, not, not specifically in Greece. So you said the public responded well, and there was this clear distinction between the advisor and the decision maker, which is something else we've come to appreciate, I think, <laughs> as helpful, not only to avoid people apportioning blame incorrectly, but, but also that. So did that situation continue as the pandemic continued? And of course, I'm asking because, as you know, in, in many countries, the whole advisor, policymaker dynamic became rather less collegiate, shall we say, a bit more political as the whole thing wore on. Yes, I think it got worse uh, during the vaccination uh, campaign. I think this is where people were starting uh, worried more. Uh, however, Greece uh, had a very big percentage of uh, people getting vaccinated, so it never got too bad. It never it never led to a huge anti-vaccination movement as we saw in other countries. But at the beginning, uh, because also of the fear people felt about this new virus, it was easier for the whole communication uh, to go through. Uh, but uh, as we were getting used to the virus, uh, then we had to do something very personal to go and get vaccinated with something new, uh, tired of the lockdowns. All this started, yeah, losing its first shiny success uh, feeling. Yeah, well, I mean, we can all remember lockdown fatigue, absolutely. So after this episode, this kind of um, COVID period, have there been any long-term changes? So I think now, in reality, it's really a transition uh, period for, for the use of evidence in policymaking, I, I assume you are asking, yes, yeah? Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, there is... Um, 
legislation that has come through that makes uh, clear that there is a center of government, the whole of government approach, which should be uh, helping uh, uh, the suggestions that we will be making on the way this can be linked to evidence-informed policymaking. Uh, there has been a, a strengthening of coordination units in, in all the ministries. Uh, and there, there is going to be new personnel that it's now starting uh uh, getting their positions uh, with the roles of policy analysts or digital analysts that they will be more easy to work with uh, if we're going to uh, have more evidence in policy policymaking. So I expect that the next couple of years is a good uh, opportunity to strengthen this uh, area. Uh, and I think the, the, the project that we're having that uh, DG Reform uh, has funded and JRC is running is a good opportunity because uh, the, the government is totally keen to, to, to work with that. Uh, it's a new government, same as before, but I mean, the, the elections have finished. So the new government is in place. Uh, so I think we will be able to say more in a couple of years' time, or I hope at least. Okay. But you sound optimistic. Yes, definitely. And do you want to say a little bit about this project uh, with the Joint Research Centre that you've mentioned a couple of times? So yes, there are seven member states participating and uh, what we're doing uh, currently in all in all the member states is uh, mapping the situation. Some of these countries are more have more developed evidence-informed policymaking systems such as the Netherlands. Others are uh, more uh, developing their systems like uh, Greece. So there's always an exchange of uh, good practices between the different countries. So we're now finishing with mapping what has what we have in every member state trying to move towards uh, ideas together with the policymakers for change. So, yes, it's going to end in 2024 with uh, policy recommendations in all countries. Uh, and, you know, I think it depends from country to country how the different governments are going to be involved uh, and, uh, yes, how they, they will uh, uh, respond. But, yes, I'm pretty optimistic for the, for the case of Greece because we are working with the General Secretary for coordination on that who is exactly the competent authority for making any changes towards this direction. And my feeling up to now is that they're very much involved and very much interested. So they give their time, their space. Uh, so, yes. Hmm. Okay, it sounds promising. I have to ask, though, we're talking, I mean, perhaps understandably, as if this is nothing but a benefit. You know, it can only be a good thing if evidence and policymaking become more closely and kind of formally engaged with one another in Greece. Do you think, though, that's 100% of a benefit or are there also some drawbacks? Are there trade-offs being made here? Well, I think always there is this discussion, not only for Greece, but for every country, that uh, if you if you have uh, too many experts, too much expertise, maybe then uh, decisions are not so democratic. Uh, yeah, they're not really listening to the people. I, I don't believe that this is uh, uh, the case. Um, I think we just need to design any type of change in the right way so that we can uh, have a good mix of the two. Uh, so I don't think there is any drawback in uh, in organizing uh, a more more use of expertise in in a period where we will be facing more and more crises and acute crises like uh, climate crisis, crisis in the middle of uh, 
very difficult climate uh, uh, situation, all the planet is, but the Mediterranean is uh, particularly affected. And we saw that this uh, summer. I don't see anything wrong in having a lot of expertise available for the government to make decisions about how we can save as much as we can in, in this uh, uh, situation. Uh, it just has to happen in the in the in the right mix and with the right communication tools uh, for the people to, to to be able to understand that these are just uh, suggestions and having good evidence. And then uh, uh, the government is still responsible for making the decisions. Yeah, makes sense. Do you think there are things that other countries can learn from Greece's experience? I mean, this is difficult to say, yeah? We are working with uh, good practices. It is also difficult to say it in the other way around. I haven't seen any any anything that I would just go and suggest, let's copy that, yeah? I think uh, this is a very... Uh, using expertise is very much... Uh, uh, um, a reform that has to do with the culture, with the political and policy culture of a country. So you have to find the exact ways of doing things. So I think we will be inspired by other countries and hopefully we will inspire other countries with our uh, reports of what is happening uh, in Greece. But I think it has to be very tailor-made. I don't think we should formalize too much. I I, I, th- I think it's good to have uh, some processes, but I don't think we should formalize too much the, 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 the process because then we can end up with something that becomes like a bureaucratic exercise. We've seen this happening with the regulatory impact assessments all over the world, not only in Greece. Not, not all countries are managing to perform these uh, regulatory impact assessments in a very thorough and substantial way. So I wouldn't like to see the same thing happening with evidence-informed policymaking. So we have to, to really do it right and work more on the culture. Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering about a moment ago when I asked about there being a trade-off here. So you're saying like not too much institutionalization, please. Yes, and it's not only me thinking that. I'm saying that and I'm now giving you uh, some uh, some first uh, hints of what we will be writing in our report. This has been said by most of the people that we talk to in our uh, preliminary interviews and focus groups about how things have to change in, in, in Greece uh, in order to introduce evidence-informed policymaking. And these are people that I really believe uh, that it's good to, to have expertise in policymaking. So they say not too much formalization because we know how this will end up. We've seen it. Well, so then I wonder, do you think this is, are you giving a piece of advice that's culturally specific? Do you think, for instance, different countries, different cultures have a different tolerance for institutionalization and formalization of this stuff? I mean, maybe to think in the concrete case, is this something only for Greece because of Greece's particular culture and history and so on? Or are you giving this piece of advice for science advisory mechanisms in general, don't formalise too much? I don't know if it is only for Greece because, um, I mean, definitely in Greece we have this... uh... We have this uh, bad uh, uh, history of bureaucracy, yeah? Uh, So when things are becoming bureaucratic, they lose their real substance. But I don't think it's only Greece that has uh, instances of (laughs) becoming... (laughs) Even the European Commission itself sometimes has become very, very bureaucratic. And uh, yeah, maybe we don't need it. So I think to be careful about how much you institutionalize, I think it's... uh, it's, And how much you formalize, I think it's, it's important 
important for all uh, uh, countries to, 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 to have a look into that. But certainly uh, for Greece, we don't want this to become a paper exercise, you know, where uh, uh, Secretariat is just ticking the box that we did talk to the experts, uh, but then maybe they haven't really integrated what they've done. Yeah. And so what you're describing is, as you said, it's a cultural shift. It is. It is very much so. Well, on that very thoughtful note, I want to say thank you, Dr. Stella Lardy, for a really interesting conversation, not just with your expert insights into the state of science advice in Greece, but also with plenty to chew of for the rest of us, Greek or not. So it's been fun talking to you. Thank you so much for the very interesting discussion. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learned societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>